Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be discussing the two decades in the making manga adaptation, A Little Battle Angel, the romantic comedy parody movie, Isn't It Romantic?, and the sequel apparently everybody else wanted, but may uh, happy death day to you. Let's get started. But that's just a shell. It's not bad or good. That part's up to you. I do not stand by in the presence of evil. She's threatening the natural order of things. Tonight is not a game. It is a hunt. I need you to destroy a girl called Alita. You made the biggest mistake of your life. And what's that? Underestimating who I am. Like I mentioned in the opening, this has been like two decades in the making. James Cameron has been wanting to make this since the late 90s, early 2000s. And it isn't until now that it finally got made. And that's worrisome because, I mean, movies that take that long to make tend to have some issues with them. I mean, you think about, let me think about anything that's been stuck in development hell for years. Things like Duke Nukem Forever or, um... Uh, what's another good example? But, you know, movies that you've heard about, and then when you, they finally came out, they all they did was disappoint. And then on top of that, this is an adaptation of a manga. And whenever we try to adapt Japanese manga or anime over here, it tends to be really bad. <laughs> and uh, so the, those two things is... Uh, combined should have spelled disaster for this movie and yet this this you could tell this was really you know handled by people who know the property and definitely wanted to showcase it more so than just cash in on it uh with so many ad, uh anime adaptations they're made by people who are basically yeomen they're there to write a script direct direct the movie itself but there's no artistic fervor behind it it's just a, it's just a job to them so they don't care about doing any justice to the thing they're just worried they're just worried about doing the thing and then getting paid afterwards uh here cameron has has said on record how many times he adores this source material and rodriguez himself is also very keen on it and definitely wanted to capture all of the as many elements as he could uh, in the in directing process. So between the two of them, and I think even the third guy, the, the other producer for Titanic, I forget his name. I think the three of them definitely wanted to capture what worked about that source material and bring it to this movie. Uh, and that and that helps a lot because this is actually my pick of the week. We're starting off with my pick of the week uh, because this is this warts and all is pretty much uh, the best thing that came out this week. Uh, you, at least for me, this is the best thing I watched this week. Because uh, even though it's got flaws, and I'll get into the flaws, but 
I enjoyed myself the most watching this movie. You've got uh, really you've got good actors: Christoph Waltz, Marshall Ali, Jennifer Connelly. Even in the the ones playing the villains, like Jackie Earl Haley, and uh, let me pull up some of the peop- other people. I forget off the top of my head. I know Jackie Earl Haley plays the main villain, the who's mostly CGI, but uh, you've like I mentioned, Christoph Waltz. Okay, so she was mo 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 capped. Uh, uh, Rosa Salazar, who plays Alita, is, is is an entirely CG creation that's done through mocap. Uh, Ed Skrein plays uh, one of the antagonists. Uh, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, uh, I, uh, Michelle Rodriguez uh, plays a voice in here as one of the characters. Uh, so you mean so a lot of unknowns ultimately because I don't know Kian Thompson, Kian Johnson who plays the love interest, uh, Leonard Wu plays one of the characters, Derek Mears. Uh, there was a there was somebody. Uh, I, there was somebody who I recognize as like a as like a Rick Yoon is in here. Uh, for for one of the for a smaller part, uh, let me find uh, if I can fi- see if I can find him. Uh, there's a they got a one of the older an older uh, like B movie actor. If I could remember his name, let me see. It's Green. Uh, okay, yeah, it was Jeff Fahey. Uh, Jeff Fahey plays a minor part in this. Jeff Fahey, best known for uh, Job Smith in The Lawnmower Man. Like, he was also Frank Lapidus in Lost. He's he's mainly he's mainly recognized in, like, B-movie circles for, for doing, uh, like, B-movie horror and stuff. And he's also on TV. He plays a minor character in this. So, I mean, they definitely got pe- people who... Uh, that are like nice gets for uh, uh, Rodriguez being a B movie, starting off and making B movies. But uh, yeah, it's it's a really the cast is gr- the cast is good. The effects are some of the are actually some of the best. Uh, they definitely put a lot of effort into making really good CG for the most part. I honestly couldn't tell you. A lot of the points where it's like, oh, that was terrible. No, the the CG is excellent in this, and it's and it's probably gonna, it's definitely gonna go down as one of the best looking CG. I mean, Alita herself is a very, it, it's a, it's like one of the better uh, mocap characters. Like we're talking just about the same level as like Caesar and uh, Gollum were for Andy Circus. She that's how Alita is as a CG character and as a mocap character. Uh I will say it's kind of hindered by its PG thirteen rating because it wants to go darker, but it can't. And it, and the story is an adaptation of like four volumes of the manga, so it suffers a bit from being too it it's two hours long, so it's not like super long. But there's a lot of story being crammed in here, and there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of ground to cover because I feel like they were they were worried that they couldn't get they wouldn't they wouldn't get a sequel after all this time, so they wanted to get as much as they could in. And we'll talk about how well they did uh, in the um, 
in the box in the box office report, but for right now, yeah, I I can see exactly why they would. Because I mean, these kinds of movies don't usually get greenlit for sequels because they don't do as well. Uh, I mean, you think about things like The Mortal Engines or John Carter, where it's like there's these there's these you know really high end high concept sort of CG driven adaptations of stuff, and audiences aren't driven to them. Like stuff with with brand recognition. Ultimately, let's be real. Like people are still driven to DC and Marvel and things like that because there's brand recognition to the to the to the name of the movie. So they know, oh, I recognize that brand name. I can trust it. Whereas a lot of people aren't going to know whether or not to see Alita: Battle Angel based on the look, based on the title, based on the recognition of it, unless they're like you know, people who read the manga or maybe watched one of the anime adaptations. But, you know, otherwise, they're not going to know if they should see this movie or not. And they're not being sold. They're being sold on the concept and not, like, name recognition with actors. Because, like, the biggest name in here is Christoph Waltz. And then it's a lot of, you know, smaller named actors. You know, not, like, big A-list actors. You know, Chris Pratt or, like... I mean, you think about last week's number one movie, uh, the Lego movie, too. That had brand recognition from the last movie and, you know, names like Chris Pratt, Elizabeth Banks, um, you know, Will Ferrell, Maya Rudolph. There are people, there are names that people recognized that were, that were attached to this movie. Tiffany Haddish. Those are names that people recognize for actors, which don't carry as much clout, but definitely will propel a movie forward more than anything else. And here they don't really have too much. It's being sold as the con. It's being sold based on the concept, which is good. That should be how movies get sold, not on who's starring in it. But at the same time, like, yeah, it's hard to sell people on this concept because I mean, you've seen so many movies try to attempt this and fail. And I think people over here maybe not may just not be into that sort of thing. But we'll see. We'll see how well it does in the long run. But Personally, this is one, this is my number one movie of the year to date. Uh, this is the number one movie I've watched so far in 2019. We'll see where it ends on the end of the year list, but I definitely enjoyed the hell out of this movie. Uh, even though it's a bit long, it feels a bit long. It's a it's a it's hindered at some points by the PG-13 rating, but the performances, the CG, the fight scenes are phenomenal. They're really great fight scenes that that don't rely too heavily on like the really quick cuts that a lot of bad action movies will do. And yeah, uh, this is honestly so far the best Hollywood adaptation of a of a manga or anime that we're probably ever going to get. But we'll see how it turns out in the long run. And we'll see if Hollywood can do better than this. This is the new high watermark. We'll see what they can do after this. Okay, Booch, what's the update? I have to get a man to fall in love with me. Boom, 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 yes! I'm Josh. That is such a beautiful name. Good morning, beautiful. Last night was amazing. I don't think we actually did anything. It just cut to the next morning. What? Just get back here. Okay. Good morning, beautiful. Last night was amazing. Natalie, I love...
I'm not going to be the first one to tell you that rom-coms are fairly formulaic and not very good. I mean, anybody who is not a fan of the genre knows that about it. And here, you've got a movie that set out to parody those tropes and those formulas. And parody is such a a fine line to cross to you know to step to to stick yourself to when it comes to comedy because in parody you have to essentially make a good version of what you're making fun of and then make the parts about it funny the comedy comes from the genre not from anything else that's why really bad parodies like the like the Later, Zucker Brothers, or even uh, you know, especially the Friedberg and Seltzer movies that didn't get how parody was supposed to work, and yet, and and yet, parody hasn't fully died. Like the other guys, is a good parody of action movies, and here you've got a parody of rom coms written by people written by these women who know the tropes of it and know what to accentuate for humor. So the pre- the premise here is. Uh, Rebel Wilson is a woman who <laughs> I'm surprised they never bring it up in the movie, but is an architect. You know, one of those jobs that like every rom com has for the protagonist. Like, I'm an architect. What does that mean? I don't know, but I've got a big presentation. They never, they don't parody that as much, which is a thing that could that would total that is totally ripe for parody in these sorts of movies. Uh, but yeah, she's an architect. And she's working at this tiny little firm that's about that's hoping for a big deal, for, big push from a billionaire played by Liam Hemsworth, uh, uh, looking for designs for his new hotel. And uh, Rebel Wilson grew up with uh, being being told basically that rom coms are lies and that girls like her don't get don't get happy endings like that. They get they get only what they work for. And she's very cynical and jaded about the genre, while her uh, friend, played by, um, ah, crap, what's her name? I forget her name. Let me pull her pull her up. She's good in this. She's really good in this movie. Um, Betty Gilpin. Any relation to Perry Gilpin? Uh, Betty Gilpin is known for Glow and Ghost Town from back in the day. She was uh, one of the ghosts in that. But she's uh, Debbie Egan on on Glow on Netflix. Let me see something. Jack Gilpin. Who am I? Who, am I, who Perry Gilpin? I know that's a name. Perry Gilpin. Yeah, from Frasier. Uh, she was um, Roz on Frasier. I guess there's no relation. There's just two families of Gilpins in this, um, in Hollywood. Anyway, uh, yeah, Betty Gilpin is, uh, it's, it goes from being the best friend assistant to, uh, to the, par- you know, the, the parodied version of the rival woman in the office who can't stand, uh, the protagonist because they're two women in the same office. Uh, there's a minor, apparently there's a minor part by Jennifer Saunders, uh, from Absolutely Fabulous, uh, as Natalie's mom in a, in a flat, in the opening, but, uh, Priyanka Chopra is, is, plays a love interest to Adam Devine, who is, uh, Natalie's friend 
uh, in the office, who like they're the best friends, and it's like the will they, won't they? Like he, you know, there the signs are clearly there that that uh, that he's into her, and it's just her trying to trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, while in while what happens is after a day at the office, uh, Natalie hits her head in the after being mugged in the subway and wakes up in a sta- in a in, in the much more uh, much more glamorized version of New York. It's not as dirty. It's definitely not as uh, diverse as the opening is. And it, and she's like in a palatious apartment and has everything she could ever need. And she's got, and her neighbor goes from being like a dirty, uh, you know, like this dirty looking stoner, stoner guy to a complete gay stereotype uh, played by Brandon Scott Jones. I'm not, I don't recognize the name, but he's on The Good Place as John Wheaton. And did you think if there's anything else I recognize him from? Uh, he's been he played characters on late on the Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Uh, he's been uh, he was in Twenty Four by Twenty Four series short, whatever that is. Very Mary Kate, another series short. Oh wait, Very Mary Kate, like the College Humor Show. Yeah, the College Humor Show. Uh, so he was a big character in that. And uh, he's been on UCB. He's from UCB. And so he get he, he, he plays both versions of the character. The, um, the flamboyant gay stereotype and the dude who just, you know, and the neighbor dude in the apartment who's kind of like a stoner guy. And so Natalie... Is trying to figure out how to get because she's the only one who recognizes that they're in a they're in a rom com universe and is trying to find a way out. Meanwhile, she's dealing with uh, Liam Hemsworth, who goes from being you know an American billionaire to a, to a, a much more accented uh, Australian billionaire. Like he's he's playing up the accent to comedic effect for this. It's like, you were in Australia this morning. <laughs> um, he is phenomenal in this. Liam Hemsworth has proven that he is just as capable of being a star as his brother. He is not the lesser Hemsworth. He is just as capable. He's just as charismatic. He is excellent in this movie. And then Priyanka Chopra plays the love interest for Adam Devine, who is a yoga ambassador. And it's like, basically, she is the the completely out of reach, like amazing, yo, know, beautiful woman who ends up with the schlubby guy. And it's, and it's, it, it turns into a bit of a love triangle between her and, uh, Natalie. And, and it's Natalie trying to figure out a, a, her, the best way out of this universe and ultimately trying to become a better person through the experience. And yeah, it's it's a it. The people writing this, the girls writing the, the three women wrote this. Um, I think I mentioned this in the in the pre in like two uh, not last week, but it must have been like two weeks ago or something. But uh, Aaron Cardillo is came up with the story and wrote it. She is she is written for for uh, Life Sentence on the CW. Um, significant Mother, couple of episodes. She was an actress on that. Uh, writer. I mean, we need the writing credits. Life Sentence on the CW. She wrote an episode of Fuller House. Significant Mother she created. Whatever that is. Never heard of it. Um, another CW show. 
Uh, Josh Zuckerman. So yeah, she's written for the CW mainly, but this is her one of her her. This is I think her biggest uh, film film uh, film you know film story and uh, writing credit. Like yeah, she hasn't done. This is her first feature length movie. Because uh, she did a TV significant mother got a TV movie. Man, I'm so out of loop on the CW. Anyway, uh, this is her first feature film, and she came up with the story and co-wrote the screenplay with Dana Fox, who wrote, who was written on How to Be Single, What Happens in Vegas, The Wedding Date, Couples Retreat, you know, uh, Children's Hospital, Ben Ben and Kate. So a mix of you know more straight up comedy with with romantic comedy, and then Katie Silberman, who was written for Set It Up. And produced on How to Be Single, so these are people. So these people produce these women produced uh, the last Rebel Wilson rom com, and is also she was also a assistant writer on Ben and Kate. Uh, this is her first. She this is her second feature film after Set It Up, and so these. But yeah, these women. A couple of these women have worked together clearly, and. They also are familiar with writing rom-coms and romantic, you know, writing within the romantic comedy genre. While the director Todd Strauss-Schulzen is, come on, there we go. Uh, he is he directed a very Harold and Kumar Christmas and the Final Girls, so he's de- he's de- he's dealt mainly in comedies, but you know he's you know it's a, but he's college humor originals. A bunch of pe- these people worked on college humor. Uh, so yeah, these so the director is known mainly for comedy, while the writers have dabbled in both comedy and romantic comedy, and yeah, so the, the everyone's kind of got a familiarity with the genre and knows what to play up, and they do they play up all the bits of it. How this rom, romantic comedy universe is much more glamorized and unrealistic uh, compared to compared to reality and the reality situations. It, you know they they it, you know if you watch the trailer, you you know about the PG thirteen thing where it's like. They can't say, uh, they can't, you know, they can't say this, they can't say the F word. Uh, they they break out in the musical numbers out of nowhere and people know choreography. Uh, so it knows what to play up and it knows what to accentuate without going into the, the really bad tropes as well. Like this isn't as toxic as other romantic comedies will tend to be. And yet at the same time, I don't think it goes far enough. Like it could go even further in recognizing the problems with romantic comedies, but it does what a good parody does, which is it makes a good version of the thing it's parodying. So you've got a good ver, you got a good rom com in this, uh, you know, in this parody movie, and that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to have a good version of the thing you're parodying, so that you know what to accentuate for the humor. And here they're playing up all the tropes, and then it ultimately ends up being a, just a good rom com. This is one of the better rom-coms, and it does so not just by being, you know, a par- not just by making fun of how dumb rom-coms can be and how unrealistic they can be, but also by just playing up what's good about them, the, the romantic stuff that that's really honest and good about it. And yeah, th- this is solid. This is an excellent rom-com, and I'm surprised it's getting such a low rating as it is. Like it's a 60 on Metacritic for some reason, and I don't know. I guess I'm on the because that's the about the same that a little battle angel got, and these two are just excellent movies. These are the two I enjoyed the most watching this weekend. Uh, Isn't it romantic? Is a good comedy on top of, of being a solid romantic comedy, and 
Alita Battle Angel was just a phenomenal movie by itself. I don't know what what people were expecting or what they saw that I didn't see or something, but yeah, um, yeah, it really. I think they're two excellent movies, and you should go see them if you get the chance because they're solid. I don't stop the killer; more people will die. Failure's not an option. Focus, man. My money on my mind. Got a meal out the deal, and I'm still in the grind. I showed you sister. I'm literally dying to figure this out. A girl from Woody, they buy, and they ready to go. Okay, you're up. I'm so done with this. I'm on borrowed time here. Alright, let's see what you got. We're in crisis mode, tree. Who's gonna pledge Kappa now that we have a death curse? Well, I'm. I'm going to have to sit at my little table for one here because while everyone's ragging on Isn't It Romantic and Alita Battle Angel, everyone else is clamoring for Happy Death Day and its new sequel. Like, I'm seeing four star, three and a half star, uh, just high praise. I think it's got, I think it's like uh, uh, upwards of the 70% on of critic scores. And I'm just like, I, I hate this. I absolutely despise this franchise. I don't get its appeal. It's not... I never found it that funny. And here, it's even dumber. And yet, people are digging it. And I, I have to be at my little table for one and say, Nah, this isn't good. This is really bad. This is This is lazy. This is... Okay. So, for one thing, this movie completely g- goes out of its way to recap... It, like the, the bit in the trailer where it's like it literally recaps the last movie, that's in the movie. I don't know if people are enjoying this ironically in that sense because yeah, it is bad. This is laziness at a level I've never, I, I haven't seen in a long time. We're just like, yeah, we know you probably, even though you probably saw the last movie, we're gonna do last week, uh, last you know, last week on Happy Death Day uh, for everybody because. Even though it, uh, this is a, this legit goes to recreating the events of the last movie, only now there's, there's like world-breaking sci-fi in it as well, and it's so terrible, like, is that, is that the, is that the, is that the appeal that's terrible, that this is like, that the people are enjoying this on the same, not on the same level, but in the same vein as the room, because it's not enjoyable in a in a in a straightforward sense to me. It's not. It's not. The comedy is terrible and hacky. Like you compare this to, isn't it romantic, where the comedy is genuine and knows exactly what to play up and play off of for for its humor. Here, it's like the humor is so forced and lazy and I don't, and nothing, and everything that I was trying to do for a joke never made me laugh. And, and like, there, like there's an extended suicide sequence where, um, the main character kills herself in order to reset the loop. And it's like, Oh, she's do skydiving, uh, in order to, and, and she's doing it in her bikini, and she's did it, did so stupid, and every like once again, everyone looks like they're in their thirties 
playing college students. What, you couldn't have cast younger actors? You couldn't have cast actors that are in their 20s, in their early 20s for this? Like, why does everyone look like they're ready to go to the next set and play somebody's mom? The rival, like, sorority girl in this movie legitimately looks like she's about to go play a suburban mom who wants to speak to your manager. Not a college student. What the hell? So yeah, the the first movie, I'll give it. It wanted to be a parody of slashers. Now it doesn't know what it wants to be because it wants to try and do the slasher bit. It wants to, tr- but now it wants to focus on this sci-fi element that doesn't make any damn sense. It's just an excuse to just be like, "Oh, here's crazy death scenes that we get to then pad out the movie, and they don't amount to anything." And it's like, "Oh, math, math, math equations, algorithm." Oh, and then there's a thing with the dean because he's not happy because he's got to make something he can patent to make money. It's so terrible. Everything about this is terrible to me. I this is my this is not only my unpopped kernel of the week. This is my first entry. Like last week, I was saying I didn't have anything in this uh, for this year for my list. Now, not only do I have one of my favorite movies of the year with Alita Battle Angel, I've also got my first least favorite movie of the year. No, second. That's right, second because uh, there was also uh, What Men Want. So it's not worse than What Men Want. I'll give it that. It's not worse than one of the worst movies I've seen all year. But it's on the list. It is absolutely on the list because it is so terrible in in its execution for what it wants to do. Once again, parody, nothing is above parody. You could you could out you could clearly make a good slasher movie parody. Here they don't do that. It is the worst type of sequel. It compl- it goes back and tries to explain the plot holes of the first movie because you know a great sequel tries to explain what was wrong with the first movie, right? Batman v Superman, and then just remakes the, like it goes out of its way to mention Back to the Future Two because it is essentially the same. Trying to be the same premise as Back to the Future 2, except without going into the future future, but recreating bits from the first movie. It is essentially a remake of the first movie, but without any of the parts that made it, like, a good slasher parody. Like, I could see it as as people enjoying it as a parody of slasher movies and a comedic take on those, but here it doesn't do that. It's, It's a hot hot mess of not knowing what it wants to do other than to kill people over and over again, Groundhog Day style. And Groundhog Day knew exactly how to play up that whole relive the same day over and over again. Here, I didn't like it the first time, and I hated it the second time. This really is just a... I wish I could go through scene by scene and point out everything that didn't work and make it better, but... I'll save that for, like, a make a better movie on Patreon or something if somebody wants me to do that. Just, uh, I I can't stand this franchise, and I, I, I don't get the appeal. I genuinely don't get the appeal. I don't get why people are praising this over two actually genuinely good movies this weekend. Like, everyone's saying Happy Death Day to You is, a gr- is so amazing that... This weekend, this is the best movie of the weekend, you know, critic-wise and audience rating-wise. And I'm like, what are you watching? What am I not seeing? Because 
Happy Death Day to You is a train wreck, and it's unfunny, it is badly written, and it is just the worst type of movie for me. Meanwhile, isn't it romantic? It's at least trying. It it's, it knows how to do a romantic comedy. It knows exactly what to play up as a parody. And A Little Battle Angel is, is trying its hardest and being the best it can be. Meanwhile, Happy Death Day to You is a is is, is like that it's like that asshole who does who who is lazy and then tries to pass it off as well. I wasn't trying that hard anyway. I didn't need to try that hard, whatever. And it's like, good for you. Yeah, yeah. Not caring is a great great sentiment. Yeah, Ugh, can't stand this franchise. I'm done with this. So yeah. Uh, We'll be back after a quick break uh, with this year's The Love Junkie. Four badass women discuss and dissect modern and classic horror films. Join us at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, a good ghoul's guide to horror. Oh! On the gummy cat. Don't read the Latin. Do you know that in the world of the insane, you will find a kind of truth more terrifying than fiction? Popcorn Junkie presents The Love Junkie. Oh, yeah. I wasn't able to do this last year just because that last year was about the time I was celebrating my 100th episode. So this year, I'm I'm going to, you know, go back into The Love Junkie, which is essentially my holiday special for Valentine's Day, where I take a look at romantic movies, both comedy and drama, and kind of revisit the ones I've seen to see how I think of them now, and uh, check out the ones I haven't seen to see what I think about them the first time. And then I'll I'll, I'll round it out with a special of some sort. Uh, These are all basically extended Netflix and chat, because these were all available on Netflix as of this recording. So... First off, we're going to start with the uh, movie before 2000, the older one I've seen before, and that is West Side Story. Uh, yeah, West Side Story is available to stream on Netflix if you haven't if you haven't checked it out yet, and it's good. It is still really good. I mean, the stage musical is good. Um, the movie is basically a live, a fully rendered cinematic stage musical. Like it definitely plays out like a like a stage musical production. Um, for better or worse, uh, I think I think that's good. They want to basically recapture the experience of seeing it on screen, but I think you could also be more cinematic with it. And it decided not to do that. That's why I'm not. I am. I. I. That. That. And one other major aspect, or why I'm kind of. I'm really interested in seeing uh, Spielberg's uh, 
adaptation of it. And the other one is our two our two main Puerto Rican actor our characters are played by white people in brownface. That's something you forget. Not only is Natalie Wood not not Hispanic or Latinx in any way, neither is the guy playing Bernardo. The guy playing Bernardo is Greek, uh, and he's he he and Natalie are both in just this atrocious brown tan face. Meanwhile, there are other Hispanic. They they clearly could get Hispanic actors for the roles. Like they got Rita Moreno to play Anita, and they've got plenty of Hispanic and Latinx actors for the for the other characters. But and I get Natalie Wood is much more popular. She's got a beautiful singing voice, but she also kind of sticks out because of that. Because the other singers in this movie are kind of yeah, and then she's like almost operatic in her singing and it's really sticks out that she is much she is it's like it's once again it's like sticking share in that mamma mia musical because she clearly has way more talent for singing than anybody else in the movie and so between that and the fact that the the, the two main puerto rican characters are in are just white guy white people in brown face Wow, that's bad in retrospect. That is terrible in retrospect. And that's why um, I know specifically the Spielberg one actually has cast a uh, Broadway actress. um, I forget. Let me me pull her up. Uh, But she's going to be playing uh, Maria. West Side Story... Rita Moreno is going to be back. Um, I don't know how well Ansel Elgort sings, uh, but he's going to be playing Tony. Rachel Zegler is cast as Maria, and she is uh, Colombian. Uh, her mom's Colombian, and she's been a singer-songwriter. And she is also this is like her first major feature film. I think she's been on, but I think she's been on Broadway before this. Like she had a. She played her first role in performing art school presentation. Reads large audience with her cover of Lady Gaga's song "Shallow," known for the. Okay, so she's like brand brand spanking new on the scene. But yeah, she's going to be playing Maria, and then David Alvarez is going to be playing is cast as Bernardo. He is, um, he's a he was wait child's play, huh? But um, he's not he hasn't been in a whole lot. But he's also I think. But he was also in the Tony Award, so he's, um, you know, he's a Broadway and stage actor for the most part. And this is going to be one of his first major feature films. Wait, what's Child's Play 2013? What the heck is that? Bullies, Revenge, Growing Up in Generation RX. Okay, okay, cool, neat. Uh, it's a short, okay, it's a short film, that's why. Um, so yeah, he is, so you got, but so you got a much more diverse cast much more um uh much more um honest casting more hispanic latinx uh uh uh, actors playing the roles and then a lot most of them are broadway uh trained and and experienced uh like like the woman playing anita ariana debose uh it was in a production of company uh, Stephen Sondheim's company with the New York Philharmonic. So I mean, we're talking about people who have a lot, who have a lot of experience on stage, and especially in musicals. So it's not relying on like 
uh, like uh, br- on Hollywood actors, it is it is digging directly into the um, you know to Broadway, much like the original did. I think I think the original also did the same thing. They carried over a lot of people from Broadway, either the Broadway production of. A West Side Story, or just people who have been working on Broadway, which is a good idea if you're going to do a, a musical adaptation, get people who are um, who are familiar with that. But I do, I kind of, di- I think it's a good modernization of Romeo and Juliet uh, for the most part. I mean, it's kind of dated now just because uh, New York has changed so much in like the 50 years since the musical came out. But as a encapsulation of like, hey, here are these two rival factions. Um, and they're all, and by making them all teenagers, it makes it make more sense than it used to. Cause I mean, like, even though, uh, and, and of course, uh, changing it up by adding racial elements to it. Whereas it was more like two rich families who didn't like each other. Now it's like two people who, who are much more different. Uh, you've got Puerto Rican, um, you know, not immigrants, I guess, but it's like more like just people from the U.S. Ter- from a U. from one U.S. like they're they're Puerto Ricans who have come from the island to live in New York, and you know the people who have lived there in New York who are like descendants of like much more of European immigrants are don't like the Puerto Ricans, and it's just you know there's I mean this movie even in the '60s was dealing with stuff that happens now, which is like the cops have a bias against the Puerto Ricans and. You know, there's there's unnecessary racism, and a lot of the problems brought up in uh, America, the song, are still true to this day, sadly. And, so yeah, it, 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 it does address the racism of the society in place, as well as not only that, but also the fact that these, these are teenagers who have come from bad upbringings, and they don't know what to do with their lives, but they have this gang, and it gives them a sense of familiarity, and that's all they got. And... Meanwhile, Tony, uh, the Romeo of the story, is a guy who's on his way out. He's, he's got a job. He's saving up money. He's not concerned about gang life. He's concerned about his well-being and being become, you know, becoming a functioning member of society. And then he meets Maria, who has no part in the gang violence. And, he, and the two of them are just outsiders, ultimately, who just want to be together. And, and, it's all, and, it's the two, and it's the two factions kind of caught up in their own bs their own garbage their own hate that they they that they that this really happy romance can't happen whereas with romeo and juliet so much you know it, how the, the 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 context for like two rival families like in this day and age, who has that outside, like, the closest thing I can remember of something like that would be, like, the Hatfields and McCoys. I, very rarely do you get, like, rival family factions. Now it's more like gang fac- gang, gang affiliation. And that's a good uh, modernization. And I think having Spielberg direct it and try to maybe bring more of a modern eye, eye to it could be good. And I'm really excited for this. I don't know if it'll end up coming out this year, or maybe next year, but we'll see. I'm really excited for an update because even though this is good, it's got a lot of problems. Mainly, you know, the brown face, but also like the the, the, the there's a big disparity between the singing, and yeah, everything else is solid. I mean, the stuff it's a carryover from the stage musical, which is solid. So it doesn't work as well. And 
uh, like 40 years onward, almost 50 years on, yeah, 50 years, almost 60 years onward, but it is still a solid movie in in its own right, even though it hasn't, as parts of it haven't aged as well. Uh, The older one I've watched for the first time is John Hughes, Pretty in Pink, and John Hughes is a lot more problematic than people remember him, like, for the most part, this is fine. I think this. I think Pretty in Pink is a lot more bland than his other stuff, just because there's a lot less going for it. Like, I mean, it's great for like quirky uh, to em- emphasize like quirky creative types, people that are on the fringes of the, of the mainstream. Like, like that's fine. That part is fine. Like, th- but at the same point, like, there isn't a lot of deep characterization either. It's very surface level ultimately. And not only that, uh, like, it's also addressing classism in school, in, like, public schools. So, like, you've got the rich, yuppie kids, and then the kids on the wrong side of the tracks that go into the same school. And they're at odds with each other. And then uh, and then you've got the main girl, Molly Ringwald, who's caught the attention of a rich guy, Blaine. <laughs> and, uh, perfect, perfect name for a rich kid. And yet... There isn't really much to Blaine. I mean, he's not very interesting. He's like a he's like a statue of a character brought to life. He's like if Pygmalion. It's like it's like Molly Ringwald pulled a Pygmalion and created a hunk out of marble and brought it to life because there really isn't anything going on with Blaine other than he's he's kind of a dope. He's kind of a rich dope, and there isn't really much personality to him. Whereas, like at least um, James Spader. No, is it? Yeah. Is it Spader or Slater? It's either Christian Slater or James Spader. Let me see. It's one of those two. One of those two guys from the Brat Pack. Let's see. Let's see. Pretty in Pink. It was Spader. It was Spader. James Spader as like the douchey rich guy, Steph. Uh, he like at least he has a personality to him. And uh, Ducky, for as toxic as he is, has a personality to him as well. And, but, you know, so they're recognizable, whereas Blaine is completely forgettable. I think that's a problem with a lot of John Hughes movies is the romantic lead. And uh, like, I remember this in 16 Candles, too, where the guy just stood against cars and didn't really have a personality other than he was attractive. So I think John Hughes just has a thing where it's like his leading love interest men are just blank slates. And then the girls are all like quirky, un- misunderstood. Like it's it's like a much prettier reverse version of like Beauty and the Beast where it's like, oh, here's this, you know, awkward, not, not, not conventionally attractive, uh, you know, you know, nerdy girl who could ever love her and then here comes this hunk hunk of hunk of teenage boy who like understands her and you know it's 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 the same mentality you also see in twilight um and a lot of the a lot of young i mean Hughes tapped into something that was has been recreated for most of young adult romantic fiction and i and i think that's the thing is that these guys don't have any personalities to them like like Ducky, at least you recognize him as a character, even though he's a toxic, toxic character. He's a toxic human being. He's a to- he is 
the prototypical nice guy TM. He is basically the nice guy TM. He is so he he openly talks about being owed a relationship because of all the time he's invested in Andy. And he is just the most toxic type of human being. He is the nice guy TM that all... And I'll admit, when I was younger, I identified as Ducky. It's like, I'm the Ducky. And meanwhile, I didn't have any friends like that. I didn't have anybody, any women I was close with that like Ducky was to Andy. So I was nowhere near a Ducky. <laughs> but like, yeah, Ducky's getting ready for friend zone. And it's like, nah, 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 nah. No, nah, you're not owed a relationship because you've invested in a friendship. That there's not a there's not a there's not like a there's not a point where you tear up to relationship status. Either they like you or they don't. And she is constantly let Ducky know that she is not into him in that way. And the fact that he never really learns how toxic he was and and it has to deal with that is the is probably the worst parts of this movie. He is such a toxic character. And no, and the only thing he does is like apologize and tell and and finally move on from Andy, and then he's immediately rewarded with like this really cute blonde chick, and he looks directly into the camera. I was like, see, if you move on from from obsessing over one girl, another girl will totally immediately hop into your lap. Like, no, no, the end of this movie should have been Ducky thinking, you know, think, realizing what he did was wrong, and maybe hanging out with their other friend. Maybe that was that's the other thing. Was that the other friend, like the blonde friend that, that they hung out with, that 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 decide that 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 hooks up with Ducky at the end, or was that just a random blonde girl? I couldn't tell. I didn't recognize the actress between scenes. I don't know because she's such a non-entity in, her, in and of herself. She's barely a part of the movie because it's so focused on this stupid, stupid love triangle, and. Meanwhile, like there are, there are some good stuff. I love Annie Potts in this. Annie Potts is fun and interesting and and memorable, and she's and she's great. She's got some of the best lines in the movie. Uh, but like as much as it captures teen angst, I think Ducky is what ultimately brings this so down. That and the the fact that this is so like the the bad the bad storytelling brought this down a star. And me, Ducky brought it down another star. It, this really is just a a a really bad movie in retrospect in that regard. But otherwise, and then otherwise, it is completely mediocre and forgettable. I don't think this is John Hughes's best. But at the same point, I, I can understand the certain aspect of it that people might latch onto, both for good and for bad. The parts with a lot of the parts with Andy are good are good like interesting stuff for creative types for creative uh especially girls that age that like to play around with fashion experiment and be outside of the norm it's good to have a positive character for that who you know you know does what she wants to do and is happy and you know is happy doing what she does but the love story is completely bland and ducky is a completely toxic character that should have been dealt with at the time we did not need people reminiscing on ducky thinking like that's totally me i'm ducky i've been friend zone and that garbage as though being being friends with a girl you like is the worst thing possible Ugh. anyway moving on to post 2000 uh what the newer one i've seen before that i'm rewatching is eternal sunshine of the spotless mind still on netflix you should definitely check it out it, it is the best movie of the of all the 
of all the ones I've watched for this Love Junkie, you've got Charlie Kaufman, who's a really great, heady, thought-provoking screenwriter, and Michelle Gondry, who is a who does the same with direction and visuals. And you've got the two of them teaming up to tell a story about the after the after effect of a breakup and what happens when you, when you uh, enlist the services of people who erase the memories erase your memories good or bad they'll just erase the memory of somebody from your life so um you've got Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet as this couple as as this ex couple first uh uh, Kate Winslet as Clementine, who on on the surface feels like a manic pixie dream girl, but thankfully it undercuts all of that by even acknowledging that people think that she's like the the amazing, vibrant wo- woman to change their life around, and she's not. She is. She's got her issues. She is. You know, she she she, she tends to have a drinking problem. She is she gets anxious about being being stable. She wants to be she wants to have adventures and be be and be spontaneous. And mean and Jim Carrey is much more um, stable. He's much more he's much he much he much prefers um, you know rigidity and he and he but he, he prefers. Doing things, you know, not do, not being too spontaneous or adventurous. He's he's very bland, and even uh, Clementine admits to that in her uh, in the movie uh, at one point. Because simultaneously, what you've got going on is Jim Carrey's character uh, Joel is uh, erasing Clementine from it, from his memory. But while that's going on, you're seeing uh, the drama behind the company that uh does the erasing unfold and you're seeing all of that play out in as uh, simultaneously as jim as most of the movie is uh joel trying to hold on to every memory of clementine he can he can before it's taken from him and even then uh just and and while that's going on, you've also got Elijah Wood as a complete and utter dirtbag who's using Joel, the memories of Joel that have been erased uh, from Clementine to take advantage of her and then start hooking up with her and da- and they start dating under false pretenses because Clementine Clementine had Pat erased from her memory during the uh, during the process because they erased themselves from the memory from the from from the memories as well so that they don't even remember having their memories erased and so Pat knowing that Clementine has completely forgotten about him uses everything that 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 um, attracted her to Joel in order to get in order to in order to start dating her and it's it is a such a dirtbag move and it's and it's like and and it's and even like in the movie Ruffalo Mark Ruffalo in the, is in this uh it's a solid supporting cast Elijah Wood um Mark Ruffalo Kirsten Dunst uh today Cross is in here as one of the as one of uh, Joel's friends and um who is the other guy Tom Wilkinson is uh the head of this uh this memory erase firm uh lab whatever you want to call it and they're all excellent. While and Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet are phenomenal together, and it it re, like it play. It, I love how it plays up the 
the the dreamlike nature of it. Like there's the point where they're hiding in one of Joel's childhood dreams, and Kate Winslet is uh, one of the neighbor women, and and she's and the and the memory of Clementine is 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 marveling at all of the stuff, marveling at the woman she's inhabiting. And like the dress, and like, and even the layout of the kitchen. And then at one point, it, the she, at one point, she's like hanging out with little kid Joel, who's being washed by his mom in the sink. And it's like, it's weird, like surreal imagery like that. That's really cool. And it, it you know, it, 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 the overall theming of how do you deal with a bad relationship? Do you completely forget it? Do you try to? Do you try to? Do you try to just? forget everything that happened or what did or is in doing so do you lose all the good memories as well like what you know you can't sometimes you just can't forget the bad you know bad experiences happen be happen and some and in relationships you you can start off great and even if you don't like each other by the end you still had those good memories and you do and is forgetting the whole thing worth it and yeah, it, it 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 it's a great depiction of the ups and downs of relationships, and acknowledging that you know what, sometimes it's a main it may not work, but forgetting the forgetting it ever happened, you know, takes away every good memory that came with it as well. So, some you have to take your good with your bad, and that's a really and it's a really excellent poignant theme for this movie and it's such a great experience it really is one of the best movies ever made honestly so yeah eternal sunshine of the spotless mind if you haven't in the while or if you've never seen it please check it out it is phenomenal uh and then i watched silver linings playbook which is also on netflix and i've heard i was heard so many praises heaped on this movie when it came out in 2012 and i watched it myself and i I had I I had a feeling. I got this feeling that I get from watching Sorkin movies, which is the dial this dialogue is so unnatural and it's so very clearly you know designed by a writer to showcase look at me, look at how smart I am. I'm look at how I write my dialogue, mark my characters smart like I am. And that's what I get from Sorkin. Sorkin is always like fast talking Full of full of verbosity without any real substance behind it. It's about how smart he sounds more than how, you know what the characters are saying. And Russell kind of comes off like that. It's not as bad. I will admit. I won't say he's as bad as Sorkin is, but he is definitely. He definitely has issues with that same mentality. And I think you see that in a lot of his stuff. Russell is. Russell is. He's not a prolific director. But he's all he he has his audience of like cinephiles and people who are really into like art, art, not just arty films, but like films that try to elevate the art form, as it were. And Silver Linings Playbook is good. I'm not saying it's bad, but I think Russell is a bit of a blowhard, and that shows in this movie. Like I don't know how accurate or uh, authentic the. Uh, depiction of mental illness mental illnesses but i also um i'm also i'm also t- turned off a bit when it, when i started to realize wait a minute 
was Bradley Cooper misdiagnosed or is this saying like love can cure mental illness? Because like most of his symptoms kind of disappear in the second half of the movie and he and they stop. Well, whereas uh, Jennifer Lawrence is uh, pretty, uh, pretty um, what you call uh, uh, like consistent. She's consistent throughout the movie of her personality traits and her, you know, the the symptoms of her own um, disorders. Bradley Cooper suddenly stops doing having the having those things. Like it starts off focusing on how um, he's a bit of an obsessive. He is, he has a bit of uh, AD, maybe ADD or ADHD, and he is you know prone to violence. So he's got these. He's got these things that need treated through his therapist, and then halfway through the movie, while he's with Jennifer Lawrence, they suddenly stop coming up, and eventually he becomes sort of essentially neurotypical by the end of the movie. And I'm like, was that by design? Are they saying that being with Jennifer Lawrence cured him, or was he simply misdiagnosed? And I'm not sure what they're going for. And uh, and one is better than the other for sure being misdiagnosed as being is better than saying that oh love cured his illness Ugh, that's very very iffy uh but overall like the performances are phenomenal bradley cooper's good lawrence is great uh de niro's good um i think julie isn't julia styles the uh sister in this let me see something silver linings playbook I I swear that was like Julia Stiles as like the sister, as like uh, Jennifer Lawrence's sister. Let's see. Uh, Jackie Weaver is the mom. Chris Tucker's in here. He's good for uh, his part. It is Julia Stiles. I thought so. Um, uh, Anupam Kerr uh, is is uh, Bradley Cooper's doctor, and he he's solid for the most part, but he's not exactly the best therapist. I wouldn't suggest going to him. Uh, but I will say like, it's not a bad movie. It's a solid movie. It's good, good performances. And it's an, it's, it's an interesting story to say the least, but I do think it's a bit overrated. I think it's a, it's a, it's a tad overrated mainly because I don't think it's as, uh, well-written and as people think it is. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's good, but I think I I heard too many people heap heap praise on this movie like it's so amazing, and I'm like, it's good. I'm not gonna call it amazing. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is amazing. Silver Linings Playbook is good. So I think as a romance movie, it's okay. Like I think Eternal Sunshine captures romance way better, but Silver Linings Playbook, for what it's worth, is is fine. It's good. But nothing I don't think it's so so amazing as people made it out to be when it came out. And then the special I watched was actually 20 uh 2017's Netflix special with Michael Bolton, Michael Bolton's big sexy Valentine's Day special. And um it's good. I think it's got part, parts of it are corny as hell and don't work and I do, and, I, and it's very clear that Michael Bolton is not a good actor. He is even playing himself. He is not 
as fluid or or like able to play he's able to play he's he's very downplayed he's very base level he's not exactly amazing like there's a reason he hasn't had a uh special a, a any kind of special before since this because he's a great singer he's not the best at comedy unless it, i mean like when he did this bit with lonely island it was funny because it was michael bolton singing and he and he's playing up the comedic through his comedy through his voice and through his song and through the lyrics he's singing here when he's trying to act out skits and sketches like like at saturday night live it's it's very awkward so he's not he's charming but he's not as great as like i think michael buble uh, if given this sort of thing, w- might be able to play up the comedy and be more, be more into the sketch work. Whereas Michael Bolton feels very stiff. Like even there's a whole bit where he goes into a dance number, and you can tell he is not a dancer by any stretch. And even trying to do the dance numbers is awkward for him. But meanwhile, the comedy is solid. Like it's uh, produced by, directed by Chris Ackerman, and so it's like the guys who behind Comedy Bang Bang. Uh, making this, and you've got all all three members of Lonely Island. Sarah Silverman shows up. Randall Park is in this. Uh, Michael Sheen is is has a great role as a as this character in, a, in one of the sketches. Um, uh, Maya Rudolph and uh, Casey Wilson show up as themselves and are funny. Maya Rudolph is a is an absolute treasure. She's amazing, but uh, yeah, the songs aren't as funny. Uh, as they could be, especially since, like, the Lonely Island guys are here, they couldn't be funnier than this, but overall, it's, like, it was, it was, a, it was a nice, fun lark, like, it's nothing I would watch again, but if you want to watch it once, maybe, like, watch it around Valentine's Day again, yeah, it's fun, it's fine, it's not amazing, it's, but, it, but, hey, it's, like, it more, there's more hits than misses with the comedy, and I think, and I think we're good with one Michael Bolton holiday special. Um, he's he's. He, I think he should stick to singing. Like if he wants to do comedy, he should do sing so, comedy songs. He should do like stuff with the Lonely Island, or you know, get you know that sort of thing where he's the guest star. I think he's better as like a cameo than he is the leading man. I think that's what it comes down to. But you know, for what it's worth, it was solid. You know, it's not something I'd go back and watch again. But it, I'm not matter that i watched it either so it was fine it was good all right that was that's that was this year's the love junkie and uh we're gonna round out this episode starting off with the box office report and now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report all right looking at the top seven essay it is now we saw a couple of Couple drop out. Uh, Glass, The Prodigy, and Green Book have all dropped out of the top seven with the three new releases. And number seven this week was The Upside, which brought in $5.5 million and brought its domestic gross up to $95 million and its worldwide gross over 100 So still, still, still hanging in there, still making some of that money. You know, not amazing money, but hey, it's profitable, which is good. Number th- dropping down from number three to number six is Cold Pursuit, which brought in six million this weekend, bringing its domestic total up to twenty-two million. And I'm gonna have to pull up the Wikipedia page for it since Box Office Mojo didn't have it. 
uh, cost sixty million to make. So if it can make if it can open in the foreign mar- in some foreign markets, maybe makes back some of that money. But I'm not seeing it coming domestically. It looks like it's gonna be a flop, which is sad. But at the same point, not exactly unpredictable. Not exactly you know surprising. Premiering at number five is Happy Death Day to You, which immediately made back its budget with o- over the weekend by by having uh, over the four day weekend grossing fourteen million dollars domestically and earning eleven million extra over the overseas, bringing its opening day opening weekend gross to twenty six million dollars, which is more than enough to continue this franchise onward. Happy Death Day. I don't know what they do now. Happy Death Day 3 something. I don't know. I don't know how they're going to punt up the next one, but there's money in it, so there's going to be another one. Dropping down from number two to number four is What Men Want, which brought in $10.9 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $37.6 million, and its worldwide gross up to forty. So it's it's already starting to make... It's, it's made back its money... For the most part, so it's profitable, so it's not a m- massive bomb, but yeah, still one of the worst movies I saw this year. It really is just the pits. Premiering at number three is Isn't It Romantic, which over the weekend, because uh, a bunch, all three of the main releases opened on Valentine's Day, so they had a four day weekend essentially, and they earned up, and this one earned $22 million over its weekend, which, uh, once again, doesn't have a budget on Box Office Mojo, so let's check out Wikipedia. Thirty-one million, so it's on its way back to making its money, but we'll see how long it lasts uh, in the theaters. If it can make back its money over the course of February, it might be okay. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, it's not doing gangbusters either. I mean, this apparently is the lowest-grossing weekend of President's Day at. at uh history so yeah we'll see yeah it's people just weren't seeing movies this weekend for some reason uh uh anyway dropping down from number one to number two is the lego movie 2 the second part which brought in 21.2 million dollars this weekend bringing its domestic gross up to 68.8 million and its worldwide gross up to 103 million and i think that means it made back its budget at least let's see the that's another it's, you'd hope that people at Box Office Mojo would cross-reference the budget so that they could have that knowledge too. But yeah, $99 million to make. So it made back its budget, but it's not doing as well as the first one. But we'll see how long it can stick in there. And then finally, you have uh, premiering at number one this weekend is Alito Battle Angel, which brought in $27.8 million domestically uh over and then overall forty three million dollars over the opening weekend. Uh, thankfully, it is being uh, salvaged in the foreign markets. Uh, I'm guessing a lot, mainly China. Let's see, who is making the most for this? China's is not available, but the, it did make ninety four million dollars overseas, bringing its overall uh, opening weekend earnings to one hundred thirty seven million dollars, which is just about its budget. It cost one hundred seventy to make. And if the foreign markets can keep this movie afloat a bit, then it can make back its money, even though it's not making it back domestically. Uh, like, we're talking little bits and pieces, just adding up. Australia, $2 million. Hong Kong, $2 million. Hong Kong alone, $2 million. Uh, 
India, a million. Indonesia, two million. Italy, a million. Malaysia, two million. South Korea is the highest grossing of the ones reported with $10 million extra. Uh, nothing from Japan either. Oh, because it opened. That's what. Oh. Next weekend is going to be interesting because Alita doesn't open in China and Japan until the 22nd. So we'll see how much it. Um, we'll take a look at the overall de- global uh, gross box office next weekend after China and Japan have their way with it. That sounded bad. Have have their go at it, let's say. So yeah, it's not doing well over here, but it's doing great overseas. People are digging it overseas, and that's kind of how these kind of movies work, where they're very visually driven. America has always had a thing with these kind of movies, but yeah, we'll see. Um, we'll see how we'll see the ultimate uh, turnout after uh, February, but. I'm hoping China and Japan help this movie out because it's definitely good. If they, hey, they saved Pacific, China specifically saved Pacific Rim, so I could, I can't imagine them skipping on this one. So yeah, Alita: Battle Angel, t- number the one of the weekend, but it was also a very light weekend, sadly. So, uh, I mean, it, it did a good job, and hey, I'm glad people are at least a lot more people are seeing it than the Lego Movie too again. So. Yeah, that was this weekend's box office report, and let's take a look. Now that we've taken a look at the week that was, let's take a look to the week ahead in Trailer Talk. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Read it all. Starts Friday. Uh, this last weekend of February is going to be pretty light. Uh, the main one, we've got two main releases, one of which is is, is just an expansion, um, and we'll talk about that. But the main release this weekend is going to be the third and hopefully final How to Train Your Dragon movie. But if DreamWorks is anything like Pixar, I highly doubt that. But let's take a look at the trailer for How to Train Your Dragon, colon, The Hidden World. Because we've stopped with the numbers for some reason. Weird. Anyway. This is Berk, son. It was the home of your grandparents and their grandparents. That's one way to bring Gerard Butler back. Spoilers for How to Train Your Dragon 2. Lies the home of the dragon. And I believe it's your destiny to one day... I really do love. I did. I give the creative team behind the the How to Train Your Dragon series credit. You do know my leg isn't a chew toy, don't you? Because uh, all the characters that you watch these characters grow up literally because they look. They they all look like they've aged into adulthood. Like they've all for they've 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 grown out. They've like you can tell that they've grown taller and like their their bone their 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 structure is more their bone structure is more adult. Instead of being like scrawny kids, and you could see that. Another night fury. It's more like a bright, a light fury. Yeah, yours is better, probably. <laughs> this February, there is an armada with enough cages for all of our dragons. This is a new kind of enemy. 
We need to find the hidden world. I will destroy everything you love. Also, hey, this movie is a great showcase of how to design armor for women. Because they look badass, and they're not like overly sexualized either. They're like they're they're they. Uh, they make sense as actual armor. In the hidden world, it really does exist. Now that's a king. You're right, bud. It's time. How to train your dragon? The hidden world. Well, look who it is. <laughs> Not a word. So yeah, that's going to be interesting. I'm not sure what the what the end result is going to be, but I'm very I, hey, each and How to Train Your Dragon has basically been the best franchise that DreamWorks has had. So, I'm 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 definitely going to be down for seeing how they fin- how they seemingly conclude it. But yeah. I'm th- and I'm going to be I have to rewatch the the uh, other two before this. That'll be interesting. All right. And then expanding wide this weekend is the Paige movie. In that Paige from WWE is starring in her own biopic, which is uh, called Fighting With My Family. Let's take a look. MGM. So glad that they're back. I'm watching that. Give me the remote. No. Give it. It's off. Hey, Nick Frost. Is your family a little different? You really want to choke her out in a lot of things? Yeah. Can I pull it tight? Oh. Trouble. Wait until you meet theirs. Wrestlers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all fake anyway, isn't it? If it was fake, would well, I have broken half the parts of my body? His left leg bends both ways. Well, that's nothing. You should see his cock. <laughs> penis. You should see his penis. <laughs> From producer Dwayne Johnson. Sorry about that. It's the rock. We're huge fans. Thank you so much. What advice would you give us? We want to be the next you. What are your names again? My name. It doesn't matter <laughs> what your names are. You walk around here interrupting the rock. Here's a rock to buy. Shut your mouth. Straight out of the trailblazing, eyebrow raising, entertaining the globe, never hotter, talking to two rejects from Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. You forget how amazing rock, uh, Dwayne Johnson was as a wrestler. He just had that persona. And I am going to blow you. Excuse me? Out of the water. Yep. Put it together. Let's keep it one. Of course. Based on the incredible true story. Sometimes some of these girls just want to get famous like cheerleaders, models. I was a model. All right. Cheerleader. See you later. <laughs> the first truly great movie of 2019. Ooh. I have no idea who I'm supposed to be out there. You're not just doing this for you. You're doing it for the family. 92%. Oh, yeah. You'll want to stand up and cheer. A witty and heartfelt comedy. Paige, I myself have come from a wrestling family too. I know exactly what it means to you. So don't worry about being the next me. Be the first you. We're all with you, darling. I love you, Rogan. Rogan. I, I love you too. <laughs> Fighting with my family. I love your accent. Thank you. So sexy. I am so jealous of you right now. <laughs> Written and directed by Stephen Merchant. Yeah, that's right. Stephen Merchant uh, from The Office and The Ricky Gervais Show. You know, the... Uh, the voice of Wheatley from Portal 2. Like, he wrote and directed this movie. And that makes me wonder, 
Is he a big wrestling fan? Like, has he talked about that? I, I'm i not familiar. Is he just like, oh, I love this story and I want to tell it. Let me see what he's... Uh, ba, 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 da, da. What is, has there anything been said about this? Fighting with my family. Nothing on his own Wikipedia page. But let me take a look at the production information. Dwayne Johnson and Steven Merchant teamed up uh, based on Soraya Paige Bevis, professional wrestler for the WWE. Uh, Days after the announcement, the main cast was revealed. Oh, no, that isn't Paige. So it is an actress playing Paige. It's uh, Florence Pugh plays uh, Soraya Bevis, uh, Paige. Um, Florence Pugh, best known for... uh, Playing Elizabeth de Berg in Outlaw King for Netflix, and was also in the in Lady Macbeth in 2016. Uh, was she played Lady Macbeth in that, or whatever the leading role was? So, uh, yeah, British actress, and I did I for I for the longest time uh, assumed that was just Paige playing herself. Um, and then Nick Frost is her dad, Lena Headey. Is playing her mom. That was her, the one talking about uh, <laughs> uh, Nick Frost's d- penis in the trailer. Um, Vince Vaughn is the is the trainer promo- is the trainer coach uh, for the for WWE camp. You definitely got a bunch of um, of WWE guest stars. Like uh, Big Show is apparently going to show up, uh, and you know The Rock, uh, Dwayne Johnson as himself. Is in this um, da, 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 Metro Golden Mayor WWE Raw in 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 ring scenes were filmed at WWE WWE Raw at the Staples Center in Los Angeles. Nice, uh, but it doesn't say if like Merchant was a fan of the story or if he's like a big fan of wrestling or anything. Um, I didn't see anything in. Uh, let me see personal life. Does he say anything about? Uh, wrestling in it. Um, let me see. Uh, let me see if there's anything in like Google. If there's, um, if he's done an interview, especially for this movie, if what he thinks of wrestling. Is it uh? Dwayne Johnson inspires Stephen Merchant to take on pro wrestling. All right, that's that, that's a bit about him becoming a pro wrestler, um, but it doesn't say anything about he himself being into Merchant of Menace. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, let me see. Uh, Explain it to the, 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 the doesn't say anything about Merchant himself being like a big wrestling fan. So I don't know. Maybe he said something before, but either way, he's a he's a he's an excellent uh, comedian and he knows good and he knows how to write and direct comedy. And I'm excited. I was shocked to see that was him directing and writing, but you know I, I have faith in the mm, hiccups. 
I have faith in the guy. It's going to be, I think it's going to be a good movie. And hey, it's already getting a heap of praise just from its limited uh, release. Damn hiccups. So yeah, that that's what we got looking forward to next weekend. And that means we're just about done with this podcast, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by favoriting us on your web browser and whitelisting us on your ad blocker. And we'll we release new episodes every Monday and... You can also check out all of our other fine programming. We just dropped the newest Living in the Stacks about Fever 1793 by Laurie Hall Sanderson. And, um, you know, be sure to check out uh, Vanessa's stuff uh, over, at, uh, over at Odd Vegas where she talks about working in Las Vegas oddities. All of Donna's stuff over on Snarkast with, like, uh, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, Once More with Feeling, The Family Business. Uh, all of that is available uh, on the on the site, and if you yourself would like to join our, our our fine network and become part of the family, you can do so by sending us an email at gumbycatnetworks at gmail dot com, and and we'll check out your show and see if you're a good fit, and see if you can't join our lovely little podcasting family. Uh, otherwise, you can check out the po- uh, this podcast on your various podcast providers: uh, iTunes, Google Play. Spotify, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Stitcher. Hoping to expand into Podbean soon. Uh, uh, Hopefully later this year, maybe expand that and make it an extra patron outlet. But uh, for for the time being, those are the main sources. So be sure to leave a five-star rating and review and let people know that you like this show and that they should check it out as well. You can also share us on your various social media. The social media home for Popcorn Junkie is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. That's where all the major announcements come from. You can also check us out on Twitter at Corn Junkie Pod. That's where I do the Twitter uh, much-alongs and trailer talks as well as interact with other podcasters and other film tw- uh, other entries, other parts of film Twitter. Uh, you can check, uh, we're not as active on Instagram today, uh, to date, uh, I'm going to try and change that soon. Uh, you can also check us out on Stardust. I wasn't active on Stardust. I'm going to have to do a thing this weekend where I catch up. Uh, but I I completely forgot to, uh, I think, no, no, I I got Stardust. Um, I got the, I got the theatrical releases for Stardust. I didn't do, uh, the Love Junkie stuff for Stardust. I'll, I'll throw that in sometime this week. But, uh, yeah, you can join me on Stardust at, at Popcorn Junkie, and you can also follow so many other cool people on there. Uh, and if you yourself would like to share, you can do so. We're having fun on Stardust. You should, too. And uh, if there's anything else you want to say, any kind of feedback you want to give, corrections I need to make, uh, you, know, conflating opi- you know, conflating opinions, what did you think of the stuff? Did you enjoy Happy Death to you? Why did you enjoy it? What is it that you enjoy about it? Because I didn't enjoy a single thing. Uh what did you think of Alita Battle Angel? And isn't it romantic? As a, did you like it? Isn't it romantic? Did you hate it? Uh, how do you like like it compared to other romantic comedies? You know, send all of your thoughts. Uh, and if you want me to read it out on the message on the podcast, be sure to leave it in the either the uh, subject or in the message itself that you give me ex- that you give me the permission to do so. But otherwise, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail that, uh, that does it for this week's episode. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and I hope you had a lovely Valentine's Day weekend. Because I know I did. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. 
Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork.